Good morning. Sorry, that was my fault. No one else's. Well, like we said, uh, Pastor Dave is in Sandy, and uh, before we get started and as he's getting started, uh, let's just pray. Lord, we come before you seeking to understand your will and your ways. We come honoring your name and seeking to have the wisdom that you provide. And Lord, we ask that it not just, just not be knowledge in our hearts, but the walk that we continue out of these doors and the ways we choose to live our lives. Speak loudly into our hearts. I pray for Pastor Dave. You give him the words and the encouragement to speak what you're asking and for his words uh, to be your words. Uh, Lord, we pray the same here. May my words not stumble before you. May you speak loudly in your, in your name. Amen. If you want, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Um, we are going to go talk through the idea of the lion and the lamb. And so Chris, great job on filling in that. Um, you guys definitely kind of roared out with that lion in there. I was impressed. Uh, so we're going to come into uh, kind of looking at the lion and the lamb. And before we get there, we need to kind of go back to last week because we're in the same place we were last week. If you remember, we kind of transitioned in uh, Revelation chapter 4 from the letters to the churches to the throne room, uh, being in the presence of God. And uh, that's being kind of the first image we get of heaven um, in kind of the completed picture. Uh, so we're jumping the storyline from the, the life that they were living and the life we live today. We skip over the how God's going to do that, and we get to the end of the perfect place with our Heavenly Father. And we're still there today. And so as we think through some of this, we need to be in that same place of recognizing that we're sitting before the throne, and that God is sitting on the throne with his power and in his position, and all of this comes out of that. And so let's read from Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John is sitting there, and he's coming to the place asking who is worthy, and he's moved to tears. He's moved to an, an emotional state where he, to me, he kind of forgets what's going on, I think. Or maybe he doesn't. And here's the question, because there's going to be two responses. One, John has really lost his mind, right? Because this is John... Um, in our understanding, he's one of the disciples, right? This is the guy who's writing it. He knows Jesus, right? He knows the hope of what's coming. And yet, he is brought to tears thinking no one can open this scroll, right? And so either he's really lost his mind, he's forgotten who Jesus is, or he really didn't understand who Jesus was and his true nature. Or there's a little bit more to this picture than we realize. And that's, I think, where we're going to camp on this one, is there's more going on than we really understand, right? And isn't that true about a lot of stuff? So uh, as you know, we shared, we're, we're getting ready for a new adventure. 
uh, we're packing the house up, and in that packing, my kids are going through the struggles of what that means. Um, and sometimes what, they, what we see isn't really what's going on in the depths of their being, right? My daughters, we've packed up their room, and they're sitting in their room staring at a blank wall, right? And they're like, I miss my toys. Well, yeah, she misses her toys. Like, what else is going on, right? If we don't dig deeper, we miss the depth of, no, I miss the times I played with my friends with my toys in this room. I don't think I'm going to have that again, right? There's depth behind this. And, you know, my wife will tell you I often miss the depth in her statements to me. But we need to give it a little kind of thought here. So let's take a look at it. So here we have the scroll. And I think this is going to be the piece that speaks volumes to us, right? And it's this. One, it's sitting in the hand of the king, right? So as we think about this, more than likely means, right, that it, it's written by him, right? This is his message for us. More than that, it comes with the position and power the king has, right? And it's sitting in his right hand. Right? The images we have of the kingdom and kings sitting on the throne is the right hand is that powerful hand. Right? You sit on the right side. That's the next most powerful person. Right? That's why Jesus is he's my right, at my right side. All right? And so isn't that the case? Right? It's, here we have his throne and the scroll and he's holding it. And so there's, there's a power in that scroll. Something we don't quite understand, but we see it there. Right? And if it's in the, his hand, that means it's something special. Right? If you remember back to the book of Esther, one of Esther's biggest struggles was how to go talk to her king, the husband, because if she didn't get invited in, it meant death. Right? And so here we have the king holding something that, we, that John desperately wants to see what it says, and he knows he can't go up and get that. The other thing, it says it's written on the front and the back. Now, for us, and me going to school, we were chastised if you didn't write on both sides of your paper, right? We always set, and teachers now, you need to print on both sides of your paper. We've got to save paper, we've got to save ink, or maybe not ink. Save paper, save the forest, which is all a great statement. But in the world of scrolls and papyrus, you wrote on one side, because they got rolled up, and to unroll it backwards meant more than likely damage. But if you had a lot to say, you would write on the backside. So what we have to understand here is there is more and just a ton of information to be revealed, yet it's sealed up. Right? So not only does it come with a position of power, but it's got a lot of information that John desperately wants to hear. And then it's sealed. I don't know. I don't get too many real envelopes in the mail anymore, but there's something special about getting a piece of mail, right? And it's usually licked, closed. That's a seal, right? And if you got a personal letter or it's from the bank or, you know, has private information and it's opened, we get a little weirded out over who may have seen our private information, right? And if we were sending a letter to a loved one, we would seal it up so that no one else could get it. And the unique thing about it is it also had an address on it, right? Who it's going to. So as we look at this scroll, it's sealed to keep it safe. It's sealed to keep it out of sight until the right person who it's addressed to opens it up. Right? And that's when those seals are broken. Right? And it's not just 
one envelope, but it's like seven envelopes stuffed inside each other, each licked shut, right? So seven seals that need to be broken in order to that, for that message to be delivered, right? And we've got to be reminded, seven is one of those numbers that represents holiness and specialness in God. And so this is a holy message that has lots of information that's being held in the hand of the king, And John doesn't understand who can open this. Because he knows he can't, right? And so he comes back to this question and he asks, who is worthy? And I think this is the piece that John gets to here. That he's crying out not because he doesn't believe in what Jesus can do. But he's crying out because his hope is set in what that scroll represents. His hope is in the future of what is going to be described there. And if no one can open that, then there's a potential that his hope for the future isn't going to come to pass. Right? We do stuff like this all the time. Right? If you have an investment, you go look at your portfolio and you look at the stock prices and we try to evaluate how, how much it's going to grow. Right? We, we talk about appreciated value. Right? And we have equations to talk about how much money Today, it will be in the future, right? That's the same thing here. John knows his true hope is in, is in the future with God. And yet here he sits, seeing the scroll in the hand of the king sealed up, and he can't access it. And he knows no one else can access it who is just like him. And so when his hope gets challenged, his emotions start to take over. And he turns and he looks at the situation. And he sees it's kind of hopeless. I don't know what's going to happen. And isn't this true of us? Right? How often do we get into a place where we have dreams and desires and goals for the future and then something happens and maybe we start to question what that future looks like or what maybe isn't ahead of us or if it's an investment, the COVID hit or a, a stock crashes and we don't know what's going to happen, right? That drives us into kind of an emotional spin. And here's the greatest thing that happens in this scripture to me right here, is that John needs to be reminded to turn his eyes from the situation he's in and see Jesus there. Listen to this. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. Now, let's just take a second there. John, a disciple, chosen to receive this vision and message, brought up to heaven to experience it, is struggling with understanding what his future looks like. It's okay if you do too. It's okay if we get sidetracked and look and stare at what we hoped and desired for. If it can happen to John, it can happen to you. Right? But here's the greatest part. Here is the church. Here is the faithful witnesses. Here are the right people who are saying, John, I need you to turn and look this way. See Jesus. Right? So perhaps for us, we can just take a moment and say, Here's a nugget for us. We're called to be an encourager to those around us and challenge and call them 
when it's hard, to turn and see Jesus in what's going on. And so the elder calls him to see and behold the lion and then the lamb. And we're going we're to see that right here, that weep no more and behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is where Revelation is going to get fun because we see some contrasting images, right? John hears the statement to see the lion, right? There's power in a lion, isn't there? My, my kids reminded me and they asked me why, but, you know, do you know a lion on the back of its ears has two eyes, so it looks like someone is looking at you from behind? And then they ask the question, who's going to attack a lion? I don't, I don't know, right? There's a ferocity, there's a, there's a power in this lion, right? We sang about that ability it has. And then we go on and it says it's the root of David, right? This lion isn't the fruit of David's lineage. It's not the fruit of what happens, but it's the foundation. It's the root of where David came from. That's the stability that God offers us. He has power, he has might, he has strength, and yet we're called to see this image. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, four living creatures... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. What we see instead of a lion is a lamb. This is the opposite picture. We have ferocity and we have meekness. We have strength and we have frailness. Right? And it's not just a living lamb, but it's a slain lamb. You take a picture of frailty and then you slay it. You make it even weaker. And yet, that's the image that we're called to see. That's the image that's invited or has the power to walk up to the throne and take the scroll out of the hand of a heavenly father. No one else can do that. There's no fight for it. There's no opposition to it. There's no one challenging him for this. That weak, frail lamb has the power to walk up and take the scroll out of the hand of God. This image brings us to this idea that we should recognize that it's not raw power that defeats, but it's the power of faithfulness unto death that brings true power, right? And that's the life we see in Jesus, right? There's not a life of power, but a willingness to give up power. There's a willingness to, to, to continue to give and to, to fight against the image of this world to, to uplift a heavenly one. 
all the way to the point of death on the cross. And even then, with the continued desire of of not yet, of there's still time to save and to redeem the lost that haven't been there yet. And then they sing out a new song. There's something that's going on between the one on the throne and the Lamb, because you would think the one on the throne is the only one to be worshipped. Yet he allows, and he doesn't oppose, a new song that is sung by the elders to the Lamb. And it says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, You were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language, people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. As we listen to that that song, the worthy be the lamb, right? Worthy is the lamb. We we start to hear some pieces of, of what we need to recognize, right? That Jesus is the worthy one in this picture and nothing else. Even the one on the throne recognizes that. And the elders fall down. And if we keep going, right, all the elders and the living creatures and all creation are giving him glory. Worthy is Jesus in this process. Worthy is Jesus to pick up the scroll. And it says Jesus was slain. And so as they're worshiping him, they're recognizing who he is. He was slain. It wasn't a punishment. It wasn't because he was guilty. It was because he was innocent. And that he brought us, his blood brought us out, or his blood ransomed us. His blood rescued us from slavery, from sin. Right? And that it reunited us with God. So his process wasn't just for us to be freed but to be reunited with the Heavenly Father, to be restored into that relationship with the one on the, on the throne. And it keeps going, and he says that this is for every tribe, every language, people, and nation. Right? That Jesus' work is not just for us, is not just for the church in our little building, but it's for the world out there, to all who give faith to him. And it says he brings us together, that it's, In Jesus, we are united. To me, that's a pretty big statement because if I look at a social media feed, if I look at the news, if I look at just about anything, even family conversations, it feels like there is division and yet we're united in Christ. And that's what he's calling us to. And in the end, Jesus gives us this new purpose, a new identity, saying that they've made him a kingdom in We are priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So as we think about the song they are singing, and the worthiness of who Jesus is, and of the Lamb, we need to look back, because John was struggling with this idea that no one was able to get the scroll. And so we have to ask this question. What if there was not a lamb? What would that mean? If there was no lamb, our hope would be lost, wouldn't it? Because it wouldn't be based on anything except our own desires. And for me, my desires get me into more trouble than they do good. 
But it starts with this. If, if there was no lamb, then Jesus wouldn't be worshipped. And the life he lived wouldn't have lined up with the truth, truth he was living out and the promises he had made. And then Jesus wouldn't have been worshipped as the Redeemer if, if, he, if his life was with no purpose, right? If his death was still good, but he wasn't able to get the scroll, then we'd still be left in the same situation. If there was no lamb, then the martyrs of the faith, and I think this is part of John's heart here, is he's believed and he trusts, and now he's struggling to understand what the future holds. And if there's no lamb, then what he has sacrificed for and what the martyrs have sacrificed them for, and even what the trials and struggles we go through, are for really no use. And if there's no lamb, then the prayers of the saints, those ones being offered up in bowls of incense, don't go to anyone. If we keep going, then we can see if, if this doesn't happen, then God's kingdom won't come. If this doesn't happen, then the wicked will still rule in righteousness. And those who are righteous will continue to suffer. Jesus won't come back. And the new heavens and the new earth won't come to fruition and God won't reign. To me, that's pretty hopeless. So if there's no lamb, then our hope is set on our own ability and our own capability and really our own mortality. But because the lamb is worthy, because the lamb is we have a hope that's not based on our abilities, but it's based on what God has done in Jesus' work on the cross. And that's a hope we can rest secured in. As we continue to walk and we look through this piece of revelation, we need to go back and just recognize John struggled and he was real. He's just like us. He had faith in a heavenly father. He had faith in Jesus. Take it even more. He lived with Jesus and he experienced things firsthand. And he still struggled to see Jesus. So brother and sister, it's okay if you struggle to see Jesus from time to time. It's not a lack of faith. Sometimes it's just a misdirection of our vision. right? And that should allow us then to, to evaluate where we sit. Right? That if we recognize sometimes we need to change our view, then sometimes as we, as we do that, we recognize we were in the wrong place. For some of us, that just means we've kind of been stuck over in this, this area of temptation or of, of gazing away from who Jesus is or of, of being stuck in what he's promised and not living it out. But then the question is, how do we turn and see who Jesus really is? And start walking towards him. And then we need to behold the lion and the lamb. John is called to, to see the lion. But what he sees in reality is that lamb. And so for us, as, as we're looking at this, we need to see this, think this two ways. One, our God and Jesus 
is mighty and powerful. And he did the work he did on the cross in weakness, in frailty, and humbleness. And that's what true power is. And so if all we want to do is expect a God to have power and to bless us and do things, and we don't want to see the same God as frail, then we're missing the image the scriptures give to us. The last thing we need to look at in here is back in verse number 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In the NIV, I believe it says, I saw a lamb standing in the throne. The picture we need to have is that God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all sit together in that throne that we're looking at. And in that whole process, even with John, John is seeing these things, and Jesus is there, and he doesn't recognize him. And that's good for us. Because what that tells us is even when we don't see him, he's still there. There was no magical uh, appearance. There was no um, poof, here is Jesus. There's no grand entrance. Jesus has been there the whole time. And whether we've been walking in the faith since our childhood or we have just discovered faith and are walking with him, the answer is, or we still need Jesus. The answer is Jesus is still sitting there in the same place. For all of us. And we need to turn and see him even when we want to ignore him. Even when we don't want to believe in him. Even when we don't think we need him. We need to turn and see that Jesus is there. And as we do this, we need to recognize the one thing those elders do. They call John not to see themselves but to see Jesus, to see the Lamb. Behold the Lion and the Lamb. As we call people to this, as we encourage them, as we ask either on ourselves but others to see Jesus, make sure we're pointing to Jesus and not through us to Jesus. Because we all have different ideas that aren't necessarily right. We all have vision issues because we're not visionaries like our Heavenly Father is. And so what we will give people is not the right picture of Jesus. So as we call people into that relationship, our goal, our desire is to connect them personally. And that happens through prayer, that happens through reading, and that happens through worship. And this is the way I grew up. The church was the place who was Jesus for you. I didn't have to worry about a relationship with Jesus because the church took care of that for me. And that led me down so many wrong paths. And there's a joy in having a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father through Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as the worship team comes up, we just encourage you to lift our hearts to speak loudly uh, to us. Um, we ask that you help us see your Son. Let us see your Son in the great things in this world and the struggles in this world. Let us see your Son when we don't think there's another hope. We know hope reigns in your son, Jesus. And his, his life was for all of us. And by faith, we have access to that. 
And so we just pray, Lord, that you encourage us, that you do all the work to help us turn and see your son Jesus and to love him every day. In your name.